Hello and welcome to the programme way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister at the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Welcome to our series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today I'm going to be reading from uh, Matthew chapter 7 uh, verses 6 to 12. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, uh, in our previous signposts, we reflected on the first six verses of Matthew 7, uh, focusing on Jesus teaching that his disciples must not judge others. But right at the end of that section, there's a verse that at first glance seems kind of random and out of place. Uh, and to be honest, it seems very strange. Uh, verse 6 says, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So in today's signpost, that's where we're going to begin. Uh, to try and make some sense of this uh, strange uh, but not random text. The saying is unique to Matthew's Gospel uh, and it's one that 21st century Westerners find difficult to understand and that may account for the very wide variety of interpretations. Uh, Baptist pastor and social activist Clarence Jordan suggested that Jesus was speaking about not spreading gossip uh, about some confidential information because if it turns out to be false or is denied, it's your reputation that will be trampled on. Well, whilst that's perfectly true, I don't think that's at all what Jesus means here. Uh, many others have suggested that it means we should try not uh, to sh uh, not try to share the gospel uh, with those whom we know will be unreceptive to it. I don't think that makes much sense either, because we don't know who will be receptive to the message of the gospel until we share it. And the parable of the sower suggests that our role is to sow the seed and trust the growth to God. Our role is to faithfully tell the gospel and uh, then have that uh, affirmed uh, by living in such a way that the transforming power of the gospel is evident in our own lives. Some have found in this text a warning against being naive or gullible. So for many preachers, the, the theologians, the theologians, the meaning would broadly seem to be that whilst we shouldn't prejudge who will be receptive to the message of the kingdom, we should also not to, try not to force it on those who show no inclination to accept it. But of course, as I say, the problem is we don't know who has or has not got the inclination to accept the gospel. And you absolutely cannot coerce uh, people to faith. So none of these explanations make much sense in the light of Jesus' life and teaching or in, indeed in the ministry of the apostles. What then are we to make of it? 
I think uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was on the right track in seeing this strange saying as a kind of bridge between the command not to judge and the teaching about prayer in the verses that follow it. He suggested that if Jesus' disciples have taken the message of the kingdom and found it rejected by evil men, then the only means of witness that's left open to them with such hardened hearts is prayer. So the illustration does seem to act as a bridge between the command not to judge and the command to pray. One should lead to the other simply because uh, Jesus' disciples may find it difficult to be at the same time both merciful and forgiving and yet be wisely discerning. To give other disciples the benefit of the doubt yet to be on guard for those who would harm the community. To judge no one yet to be wisely observant to see the true character of people and deal with them accordingly. But through the divine enablement that's supplied by God as Jesus' disciples pray, they can avoid the extremes of chapter 7 verses 1 to 5 and verse 6. To understand this strange saying, it's helpful to read the text in light of the basic premise and the pattern of the Sermon of the Mount as a whole. Um, throughout the sermon, Jesus has repeated a threefold pattern, identifying what the conventional wisdom says about an issue, what we might call the traditional righteousness uh, view promoted by the Pharisees. He then gives a diagnosis of the damaging vicious cycle that results from that false righteousness. And then he offers a transforming initiative that leads to a better righteousness, i.e. not the righteousness of the Pharisees and religious leaders. So let's look firstly at the conventional wisdom. The traditional idea of righteousness and consider what Jesus' audience would have thought of as he said these words. And the first thing we need to identify is who are the dogs and the pigs according to the cultural norms of the time. The language of verse 6 sounds very like the traditional Jewish teaching in the first century to call Gentiles, that's non-Jews, dogs or pigs. Specifically, we know that rabbis at this time and for some time afterwards used these terms to refer to whole nations. But at the time that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, when they spoke of pigs, they were normally uh, referring to the Romans, presumably because they ate pork. Uh, they observed the practice of sacrificing a pig over a grave in order to sanctify it. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, we find echoes of this attitude elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, when the prodigal son goes into the far country and works for someone where he gets the job of feeding pigs, the first image that would have come into the minds of Jesus' audience was that of a, a young man living somewhere in the Roman Empire working for a Roman citizen who kept pigs and ate pork. We also find something similar in Mark 5 uh, verses 1 to 13 in the story of the demon-possessed man in the Gerasene region, which was a, a Gentile region. Jesus asked the evil spirit what its name was and it answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. The name was, of course, the word for a Roman army legion of soldiers. And Jesus allows the unclean spirits to enter into the herd of pigs. And interestingly, the word for herd is also used to describe a squad of Roman soldiers. And we should note that when Jesus gives the spirits permission to go into the pigs, the word he uses carries the sense of a military command, as in dismissing a squad of soldiers. Once the demons entered the pigs, the whole herd rushed into the sea like troops rushing into battle. 
as Glenn Stassen notes, for Jesus' audience, it could hardly be more obvious that the cursed pigs are being described as being like Roman troops. The pigs rush into the sea as many Jews wished the Roman legions would do. So when Jesus said not to throw your pearls before pigs, he was almost certainly speaking of the Romans or the Roman Empire. Uh, he was repeating the conventional wisdom that if you wanted to be righteous before God, you should have no dealings with the Romans and you shouldn't teach them the Torah or the way of God. Now, the vicious cycle that results from that wisdom is found in the consequences that Jesus lays out. They will turn and destroy you. We should note that being trampled underfoot is also the fate that salt deserves when it's lost its saltiness, which in spiritual terms speaks of disciples losing their distinctiveness as disciples by compromising with the world. And I think there's a connection between those two things, for here on one level, Jesus is surely warning against compromising with the Roman power structure that was so unjust and violent. Um, the word that's translated here as give is the same word used in Matthew 22 and 21 uh, on the question of whether to pay loyalty to the Roman Empire in the form of giving or rendering taxes to the emperor. The same words used at the climax of that teaching that they should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. And there's something very similar to that going on here. It seems that those teachings and the one here in Matthew 7 are about giving full loyalty to God and not giving our loyalty to the world and its powers. And for Jesus' audience, that would have been personified by the Romans. If you give your loyalty to those powers, then you will also be subject to those powers and they can turn on you and destroy you at any time. Offering your loyalty to the Romans in return for power and prestige and wealth was a constant temptation in the first century, especially for those on the upper strata of society. Rome had the power to appoint or depose the civic and religious rulers. It had the power and the wealth to reward those who served their unjust regime rather than maintain their faithfulness to the God of Israel. The religious leaders, the Sadducees and the high priests had a reputation of taking a bite from that cherry. Both Annas and Caiaphas owed the Romans for their positions in the Jewish religious hierarchy. They regularly compromised with the corrupting influence of Rome and by doing so gained power and wealth, which they used to get more power and more wealth. Uh, they even had private gangs of police going around making sure that if there was any rebellious talk, it didn't turn into a full-fledged rebellion that might threaten their position. The result of this was not only continued injustice in the land, but a false righteousness that made a mockery of God, in effect denying him. It left people uh, thinking that they were righteous, but in fact who were disconnected from God's righteousness. They were blind to the reality that they were destined for hell and damnation. Now, in contrast to this vicious cycle, Jesus offers a transforming initiative. The conventional wisdom was not to give any loyalty to the Romans and that wisdom was right, but for all the wrong reasons. 
The Pharisees thought that if they avoided contact with the Romans, they would avoid being polluted by them. Just by not having contact with them made you righteous. And the less contact you had with the Romans, the more righteous you were. However, not giving your loyalty to the Romans did not mean that it was automatically given to God. And so Jesus offers a transforming initiative that calls us to actively give our trust, our loyalty, our prayers to our Father in heaven who will care for us like a parent cares for their child. And there is no, uh, perhaps no more obvious declaration of trust than prayer uh, because you're, you're, the things that you bring to God in prayer are the things that you're acknowledging that neither you nor the powers around you are able to deal with. It is only God who can deal with them. You're trusting him and trusting yourself to him by praying. The command to ask, seek, knock is amongst Jesus' best known sayings, but is much misused. This is not the first time Jesus has taught about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's by, by no means uh, does it encapsulate all that he does teach on the subject. Probably the most important thing to understand from these verses this, is that this command to ask, seek and knock is not a blank check guarantee that we will get whatever we pray for if we just keep asking for it. In the model of prayer in Matthew 6, we are called to pray for God's will to be done, which means that we should pray for the things that are in accordance with his will, that reflect his will and his priorities rather than our own selfish desires. In fact, in that model prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for deliverance from temptation. And in the context of uh, um uh, Matthew 7 verse 6 that must also mean the temptation to offer our loyalty to the earthly powers in exchange for position and power and wealth. Although some scholars understand ask, seek and knock as basically being different ways of saying the same thing, it's probably better to understand them as Wilkins notes as indicating a rising scale of intensity in one's prayers and points to the persistent manner of a life lived before the Father. To ask in prayer indicates coming to God with humility and a consciousness of need. It's the awareness that what is needed is beyond their own power and ability to provide. To seek in prayer connects our prayers with responsible activity in pursuing God's will. For example, it's perfectly right and natural to pray for a job. But alongside that prayer, it's also right to seek a job by looking to see what jobs are available and then applying for them. To knock in prayer indicates perseverance in our seeking and asking, but not in the sense of badgering God until he caves in and gives us what we want. Rather, it is to persistently pray with the assurance and confidence that God will answer because God is good and because he promises to do so. The certainty of an answer is based on the loving parental care of God the Father and is indicated not only by Jesus' illustration of bread and stone, but also by the parallel responses of it will be given, you will find, the door will be opened. Jesus' illustration drives home the point. No responsible father would trick his children by giving them stones that look like bread or, or nor would they endanger their children by giving them a snake instead of a fish. Now if wicked, evil, sinful human fathers can act responsibly with kindness and goodness, how much more will our heavenly father do so? 
The point we must grasp from this is that our Heavenly Father is absolutely trustworthy and will always give us what we need and what is good for us. Of course, what God knows we need and knows what is good for us may be very different from what we think we need or what we think is good. We should also note that the threefold commands to ask, seek and knock are in what is called the present imperative tense, which means that the text literally reads, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. When we link verse 6 with the verses that follow, um, we see that Jesus is effectively saying that God is faithful and the world power structures represented here by the Romans are not. Therefore, he calls us to put our trust and our loyalty in God and in God's ways, not in the temporary rewards of the dogs and the pigs, the powers and authorities that are opposed to God. The religious leaders pursued the power and wealth that came from giving loyalty to Rome. The Pharisees, however, made the opposite mistake. They thought they were already righteous, that they'd earned God's favour just by avoiding the Romans. And that's why I think, actually, that verse 6 is one of their own slogans that Jesus is quoting back to them. In the verses that follow it, uh, it, that, that, that saying, Jesus turns the slogan on its head and preaches the gospel to them. God's favour is granted by grace, not by our deserving. All we have to do is ask, seek and knock. And keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The lure of empire and all that it offers never goes away. The Romans are long gone, but other empires have risen up and other idols are all around us. And they they pull on us, for they lure us, uh, demanding our loyalty. If we give our loyalty to them, then we will... Uh, be rewarded in this way and that way. But the same issues exist. Those are the principalities and the powers that are opposed to God, ultimately. And if you give your loyalty and trust and your allegiance to those powers, then you're subject to those powers and they can turn on you and destroy you at a moment's notice. The lust and lure of empire and all that it offers never goes away. And so we must daily, consciously and deliberately declare our allegiance and trust in Jesus Christ, the saving King. That's what we're called to do. Don't throw away what you have, but give it to God. Trust him. Put your loyalty, your allegiance, your trust and your confidence in him. For he is good and he knows what you need. Thanks for listening.